This is Berenson Bond, episode 10, with your hosts, Corey and Diego Berenson. Hi, Diego. Hi. Welcome. Number 10. We did it. Over the hump. They say that if you do more than six podcasts, you made it. We did it. So this is a thing. So today we're going to go through, I'm going to read from a book called Natural Born Heroes by Christopher McDougall. And it's a very long, dense story about endurance. We're during World War II on the island of Crete. Three men who were not soldiers overcame these fantastical, amazing physical feats that you wouldn't even think is possible. And when I was reading it, it sounded pretty, it just sounded unattainable for people. Like, can, can humans really do this? And then right in the middle of this story, a man swam around the whole country of Britain. Can you believe that? Nope. He did. He absolutely did. And so it was proved to me. Now, I know about ultra marathons, which is a double marathon. Double Ironman is an ultraman. So I'm going to read from some of this first. And if you have any questions, you just stop me. And there was a lot in this book where I could go any direction I wanted to go. Health, fitness, history, martial arts. It's all in there. So I picked some excerpts that I think you're going to dig. A Cretan is measured by his xenia. And the three rules are very clear. You offer food. You offer a bath, you ask no questions. Not at least until the traveler has been refreshed. That way, he'll at least get a bite and a breather in case you discover you can't stand him. You can think of Xenia as compassion, but only if you get rid of the notion that compassion is based on sweetness or charity or even trading favors. Compassion is a battle instinct. A jungle law alert system that lets you know when someone or something is closing in on you for the kill. We like to pretty it up with a halo and call it angelic. But compassion really springs from our raw raw animal need to figure out what is going on around us and the smartest way to respond. It's your social spider web. A protective netting of highly sensitive strands that connects you to your kinfolk and alerts you to the instant one of them runs into the kind of trouble that can find its way back to you. Compassion requires you to be a wonderful listener, much like psychiatrists and FBI profilers, and for essentially the same reason. The goal is to get inside someone else's head. And in that regard, rule number three of Xenia was way ahead of both crime detection and psychoanalysis. Peppering someone with questions, as any police interrogator will tell you, isn't nearly as effective as letting him relax until the words flow on their own. And when they do, you when you get access to someone else's feelings, you can put aside your own and see the world through a new set of eyes. The kind of insight is crucial to what combat soldiers call situational awareness. What do you think about that? Good. Do you understand what that means? What it's saying is that if you really want to see what's on somebody's mind, 
and you want to be compassionate, which means you want to be more understanding, you just have to sit and listen. And eventually, if they're trying to trick you and not tell the truth, you just keep waiting, wait for it, and then the truth will start pouring out. As long as they're trying to hide it, the longer they talk, it's just going to start coming out. You just have to be patient and wait for it. And boom, it's going to come out. Next, something, this is a part that I thought was very awesome. So the people of Crete were these crazy strong farmers and villagers that would climb up these super sharp mountain goat paths on super sharp rocks, very hard surface to climb, to get a hold of. And they would do this all the time, and this is how they tricked soldiers. These three guys who weren't soldiers, they stole the commander of the German army, went through the German area, and hid him in mountains where they couldn't find him because they're like, look, there's no way humans are going up this crazy cliff with sharp pieces of rock poking out everywhere in these mountain goat paths. And that's exactly where they went. Think humans can do that? Mm, yeah. Yeah, if they're they brave did. enough. Yeah, exactly. So if. the if so the people of Crete had this health equals heroism and heroism equals health. Heroes are protectors and being a protector means having strength enough for two. Being strong enough to save yourself isn't good enough. You have to be better always than you'd be on your own. The ancient Greeks Greeks loved that little interlocking contradiction. The idea that when you're only your strongest, when you have a weakness for other people. They saw health and compassion as two of the chemical components of a hero's power. Unremarkable alone, but awe-inspiring when combined. A smart body, Erwin explains, knows how to convert force and speed into an almost endless menu of practical movements. Hoisting yourself atop a pole may seem trivial, but if you've ever caught in a flood or fleeing an attacking dog, elevating your body five feet off the ground can make all the difference. I meet men all the time who can bench 400 pounds but can't climb through a window to get someone out of a burning building. I know guys who can run marathons, but who can't sprint to anyone's rescue until they put their shoes on first. Lots of swimmers do laps every morning, but can't dive deep enough to save a friend or know how to carry him over rocks to get him out of the surf. And the reason I like that part is because when I exercise, I want to be able to do real life things. I want to be able to run and catch you and carry you out of a window. I actually think about those things. Can I pick you up and run with you? Can I climb a fence? Can I jump over a fence? Yeah, I can do that stuff because I do it when I'm playing with you guys. At the playground, I'll jump over the bridge and climb it up with my own bare hands. Because what if I need to escape somewhere? So in the 1800s, we're talking over a 120 years ago, they used to do races where guys would run for five, six days and run hundreds of miles. And they did that around 1876. 70,000, actually it says here, in 1876, 70,000 fans turned to watch a guy named Weston 
go head-to-head in a six-day challenge against Daniel O'Leary, a door-to-door book salesman who beat the champ and set a world's record of 520 miles. He ran 520 miles. And then... Wait, without stopping? He stopped to take breaks, but then he kept going. He would Uh, eat, take a quick nap, and then keep going. He would just go and say, until you say you quit, then we'll say who the winner is. But the guy said he quit. So they both said they quit, and the winner, this guy, ran 520 miles. How many did the other guys run? It didn't say. It didn't say here. But it says that it was always the same guys, so then... People didn't want to go see the same guys anymore. And eventually, things like football came around in giant stadiums because then you could get a lot of people to watch a lot of people doing sports. And then it goes on to talk about the feat of how 100 years later, people started paying attention to, okay, I want to see what the human body is capable of again. And this one girl named Julie Moss, she was an exhausted college student and she fell to her knees at the end of an Ironman and she got just almost to the end and her body just shut down. She was almost at the end and her body just like crashed on her and she crawled slowly slowly past the finish line and then everybody said oh that's amazing she didn't give up she was gonna win but then her body is shut down did she win though she didn't win because another person there although other runners were coming and then but she crawled past on her hands and knees and all of a sudden people thought wow that's winning finishing is winning the fact that she did that hard race was just as good as if she was first place. So people started saying, hey, what am I capable of? I can do these crazy long runs. I can swim for a long time. And then all of a sudden you got Tough Mudder, Spartan Race, and all these other races. For example, we know mom used to run marathons. Here's a part with this guy running marathons. He says, how do I get into this year's Boston Marathon, he asked. You don't. The race was less than four months and he'd have to qualify by running another marathon in under three hours. A hundred and three? He had to run the marathon in under three hours. So he had to finish the whole marathon. How long was it? It says he ran six minute and 20 second miles. Who is he going against? All the other people trying to compete. He just needed to run it faster than three hours. So he ended up doing it. Did he win? Um, it doesn't say if he win, but he qualified to be in the other race. He, he wanted to be in the one in Boston, so he did it. He went, so the race was you have to, how long is the race? 26.2 miles, and he had to run faster than three hours. No, you said under three hours. Yeah, he had to run less than three hours. So like maybe two hours? Yeah, he did, he did two, two and hours and 46 and minutes, so barely, but he made it. That's, that's really fast. Did he won? It doesn't say he won, but it says soon he was cranking out a half marathon a day, seven days a week. That means 13 miles a day, seven every day for seven days a week. And he could do twice the difference, nearly five miles in the water, 
224 miles by bicycle and 52 miles on foot in one day. That's called the ultra marathon. And it says, but man, my foot. Just when he was reaching his peak, a sore spot behind his little toe kept swelling until as big as a ping pong ball and it made his entire leg throb like an abscessed tooth. Wait, throw up? A big, uh, like a big ball. An abscess is like a bunch of germs that makes a hard ball right on his little toe so it looked like a ping pong ball of skin and weird stuff on his pinky toe. And so it hurt so bad he couldn't run anymore. He had to walk to the finish line? Well, he still wanted to run, and the doctor's like, no, you crazy, you have that big thing on your foot. You got to get it off if you want to compete. But he went to all these doctors, and nobody knew what to do. And he's like, man, I, what am I going to do? So one person How said, How did that even happen? I don't know. It doesn't. It just says it when there on his foot all of a sudden. And then his friend said, okay, Go see this one guy, please. He, I think this, go see one more doctor. I think he can help you. He's a little different, right? And his name was Dr. Phil Maffetone. And it says he happened to be there where he was going to compete. And he was a former track athlete. But otherwise, there was no reason he should know anything other doctors didn't. And maybe his friends were only impressed because Phil treated them like real patients and not high-functioning psychotics. So Phil told Stu, lie down on the grass, and he began pushing his arms and legs to assess muscle resistance. Relax, he said, and he grasped Stu's foot and gave it a yank. <gasps> Angels sang. <laughs> it didn't hurt, and... Quickly, the lump just disappeared. Did you see? It just started to go away. And all of a sudden, he started jogging around. Running, he's like, this is crazy. That thing is gone, and I feel fantastic. I want to run right now. And he said, uh, you probably shouldn't run. That weird thing on your foot has been there for a long time. You should take it easy. And he said, no, I'm going to run. I feel good. So what he did is he, it was a... Uh, dislodged bone in his foot and he snapped it into place when he yanked his foot he snapped the bone where in the in the straight line where it was supposed to Ow. go yeah ouch and he says well worse breakdowns are going to be in your future if you don't start making some changes in what you eat and Stu said okay i'm listening you made my foot feel better please tell me what's what's my problem Running technique? Do I need to change how my feet are? What I'm doing? Arches? Maybe like how my the curves on the bottom of my foot? He said, no. Sugar. Sugar? Really? Not only sweets and sodas, Phil explained. Pasta, power bars, pancakes, pizzas, orange juice, rice, bread, cereal, granola, oatmeal. All the processed carbohydrates that Stu had been told were the ideal runner's diet. They're just sugar in disguise, Phil believed. Humans are superb endurance athletes who've roamed farther across this planet than any other species. And we didn't do it on Gatorade and bagels. We did it by relying on a much richer and cleaner burning fuel. Our own body fat. The point of your training isn't to see how fast you can get your feet to move. 
The point is to get your body to change the way it gets energy. You want to burn more fat and less sugar. Because right now, your body is a sugar-burning, fat-storing monstrosity. Does it say who had the ping pong ball? Yeah, it was this guy. His name is... Wait, is it him on the Stu. back the No, book? the guy on the back, that's the author. He wrote the book. Oh. Well, then... It says you sh- uh, Think of your body as a furnace. Who... Huh? Who got the pink papa? Uh, this guy, Stu. Stu Middleman. You can Google all his stats online. He's an incredible specimen. Stu is baffled. Okay, but how does food hurt your foot? Think of your body as a furnace, Phil explained. Fill it with slow-burning logs and it will run smooth so and strong for hours. Phil is the one helping the one who... Yeah, his, so we'll, his name's Dr. Phil... Maffetone. So Phil is the doctor and Stu is the running guy who had the thing on his foot. And so he's trying to tell him he needs to change what he eats if he wants to run and do all these long races. So he says, fill your body with slow burning logs and it will run smooth and strong for hours. But fill it with paper and gas soaked rags and it will burn hot, rattle the pipes and die out until it's fed again. That's what you did, Phil said. You shook yourself into an injury by stuffing your furnace with garbage. If you want to stay healthy and perform your best, you need to teach your body to use fat as fuel immediately. Because a lot of runners, they think they need to eat carbohydrates, thousands and thousands of of calories, and it just burns through them. But then they get gassed out if they don't keep eating. But if your body's burning fat, it can just have energy for a long time. That's pretty much how I eat. You don't eat there yet because you're, you're a kid. You guys are carb crazy. It's fine. And that's okay. He says, to use fat as fuel, you need to do only two things. Cut out sugar and lower your heart rate. We store only a very limited amount of carbohydrate in our bodies. Compare this with a relatively unlimited supply of fats. Carbs are a puddle. Fat is the Pacific. At any time, your body has some 160,000 calories on tap, 2,000 from sugar, 25,000 from protein, and nearly 140,000, 87%, are fat. Even an athlete with only 6% body fat will have enough fat to fuel exercise lasting for many hours. When you use more fat, you generate more energy and your carbohydrate supply lasts longer. When you teach your body to rely on fat, your combustion of carbs goes down and so does your craving for them. Which means if, because I eat mostly fats and low carbs, I don't, my body doesn't want to eat them. But when I eat a whole, if I eat a bunch of donuts and bread all the time, do you know what I want to eat all the time? More donuts and more bread. Because my body says, mmm, that was good. I already burned that up in 10 seconds. More. Bring the donut truck. Bring it on. So Stu would have to go cold turkey. He would have to stuff himself silly all day, but only on meat, fish, eggs, avocados, vegetables, and nuts. No beans, no fruit, no grains, 
no soy, no wine, no beer, whole dairy like sour cream Wait. and real cheese were in, were in, low fat milk was out. Wait, beans is... So beans apparently are carbohydrate rich. And so his Dr. Uh. Phil is trying to tell him, I want you to only eat foods that have a high amount of fat. That beans was good. Huh? That beans was good for beans you. Beans are good. Beans are. But this he's trying to run hundreds of miles. He's on a different program. Me and you, we're just trying to play football on the street, hang out, jog around, do some hikes, ride our bikes, ride a skateboard. It's a different program. The program of life. All right. This part I found very cool. Because check this out. It was worded in a way that kind of explained how I felt since I changed my diet. It says, your body knows by the way the world looks, sounds, and feels. When you move in a more comfortable fat-burning state, the visual information is distinct, expansive, and three-dimensional with the peripheral vastness and expansiveness that is unique and identifiable. Peripheral fringes tend to disappear and your attention gets drawn into a much... Sorry, let me go back. Sorry, we got a call. Yes, question over here? That might be our next guest. I got to call him back. Bodie's dad. Wait, but when are you going to answer? Well, I'm reading right now. I'll call him back after. You could just text him. Nah, I'm reading right now. I'll text him in a second. just beep, 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 and then you don't have to call. I'm not going to beep, 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 you beep, beep, beep. Okay, me beep beep. <laughs> beep, beep, beep. It says, and three-dimensional with the peripheral, peripheral vastness and expansiveness that is unique and identifiable. It's as though you're in a 3D surround vision movie theater. You're seeing with the eyes of a hunter. But when your heart rate climbs, you become the hunted. As soon as you shift into a more challenging, sugar-burning state, visual information tends to collapse inward the peripheral fringes tend to disappear and your attention gets drawn into a much narrow field of vision. Visual images tend to flatten out, become two-dimensional, and you begin to feel as though you're running through a tunnel with the world painted on inside walls. Alright, so we're almost at the end of what I'm going to read. I'm on my last paragraph. Alright, can you hang... This one is going to really tie the rug together. This is going to pull the room together right here. <laughs> you can do it. Don't, don't. I know. You're doing so good. I only had five. I had eight. Sorry. I was trying to get through it. This is the last one. All right. It's a big deal because this is, I'm reading another book called The Case Against Sugar and it's super duper long. So this one paragraph kind of touches on what I'm going to talk about in that one. So this. Whether you become fatter or skinnier, stronger or weaker, more alert or lethargic, is largely influenced by insulin, the hormone that acts as your body's warehouse foreman. When sugars and carbohydrates are converted to glucose and enter your bloodstream, your pancreas deploys insulin to figure out where to store it. Glucose is great when your body needs it, 
It fuels brain and muscle cells and is converted into fat for future use. It also acts as tinder so your body can burn fat as fuel. But here's the catch. Insulin evolved to handle complex carbs created by nature, like leafy greens, not simple carbs created by us like cereal and bread. Simple carbs are absorbed too fast. Your cells get their fill and the rest is turned into fat before your insulin has a chance to dissipate. So raisin bran is not good for you? If you eat a lot of it, no. Sorry, raisin bran is pretty tasty. The still active insulin it's in your... It's a different b- one, by the way. It's not... Yeah. It is the healthy raisin bran. What is it called? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, that's not the name. It's called blah, blah, blah. I just called blah, blah, blah. The still active insulin in your bloodstream goes looking for more sugar, which makes you feel hungry. So you chow another donut, starting the whole process all over again. Sprinkle donuts. (laughs) Yes. Enough years of this abuse and your cells can become insulin resistant. They're tired of being asked to absorb all this glucose, so they just stop responding. What then happens to all that glucose? It goes straight to fat. Get it? it? That's all I got? Finally. Oh, you did it. I'm so proud of you. Now, I have a book. It's from Judy Bloom. Not a true story. Just, it's about, it's basically a lesson. Um, The one in the middle is the green kangaroo. So it's not, it kind of is like, the title might sound like a kiddish book, but it's actually a lesson about being a, a middle child. Um, so I could just read this back one real quick. Um, it's a short story. It's not, like, it's not that much, but, like, how younger kids, how their stories are a little bit short, but on the back it says, it's just, a not really a spoiler, but kind of, like, telling you what the book is about. Um, Freddie Diesel has two problems. One was his old, is his older brother, Mike. The other is his younger sister, Ellen. That leaves Freddy in the middle, feeling like the peanut butter part of a sandwich squeezed between two pieces of bread. Like a great big middle nothing. So when Freddy hears about the school play, he knows it's his chance to shine, even if the play is being put on the big kids. And even if Mike says that everybody can jump. Nobody can jump quite as well as Freddy, which makes him the perfect green kangaroo and the star of the show. Okay, so. I like this story. You know, I'm a middle child. You are? Yeah, I have an older and a younger brother. I'm the middle child. Freddy Diesel has two problems. One is his, was his older brother, Mike. The other was his younger sister, Ellen. Freddy thought a lot about being the one in the middle, but there was nothing he could do about it. He felt like the peanut butter part of a sandwich squeezed between Mike and Ellen. Every year, Mike got new clothes, but he he grew too big for his old ones, old ones. But Mike's old clothes weren't too small for Freddy. They fit him just fine. Freddy used to have a room of his own. 
That was before Ellen was born. Now Ellen had a room of her own. Freddie moved in with Mike. Mom and Dad said, it's the boys' room. But they couldn't fool Freddie. He knew better. I don't really get that part, though. Why not? Um, but they couldn't fool Freddie. He knew better. That means... I know you're taking my room away. Don't act like you're hooking me up with a fun situation. You're taking my room away. <laughs> okay. Once Freddie tried to join Mike and his friends, but Mike said, Get out of the way, kid. So Freddie tried to play with Ellen. Ellen didn't understand how to play his way. She messed up all Freddie thing Freddie's things. Freddie got mad and pinched her. Ellen screamed. Freddie Diesel, Mom yelled, you shouldn't be mean to Ellen. She's smaller than you. She's just a baby. Ellen didn't look like a baby to Freddie. She didn't sound like a baby either. She even goes to nursery school. Freddie thought, some baby. Freddie figured things would never get better for me. He would be. He would always be a great big middle nothing. Uh, then one day, Freddie heard about the school play. Rehearsal for grade five and six school play tonight. Mike had never been in a play. Ellen had never been in a play. This was his chance to do something special. Freddie decided he would try it. He waited two whole days before he went to his teacher, Miss Gumber, and said, I want to be in the school play. Miss Gumber smiled and shook her head. I'm sorry, Freddie, she said. Uh, Uh, no. Just turn the page already. Okay. The play is being done by the 5th and 6th graders, the big boys and girls like Mike. Freddie looked at the floor and mumbled. That figures. He started to walk away. Wait a minute, Freddie, Miss Gumber called. I'll talk to Miss Matson anyway. She's in charge of the play. I'll find out if they need any 2nd graders to help. Finally, Miss Gumber told Freddie that Miss Matson needed someone to play a special part. Miss Gumber said, Go to the auditorium this afternoon. Maybe you'll get the part. Great, Freddie. Horold, right? Hall, hall, hollered? H O L O E R E D. Yep, hollered. Oh. I have no idea what that means, but. That means the same as yelled. Oh. Later, he went to the auditorium. Miss Matson was waiting for him. Freddie walked right up, right up close to her. He said, "I want to be in the play." Miss Axe, Miss Matson, asked him to go up on the stage and say that again in a very loud voice. Freddie had never been on a stage. It was big. It made him feel small. He looked out at Miss Matson. I'm Freddie, he shouted. I want to be in the play. Good, Miss Matson called. Now, Fred, then Freddie, can you jump? What kind of question was that? Freddie wondered. Of course he can jump. He was in second grade, wasn't he? So he jumped. He jumped all around the stage. Big jumps and little jumps. When he was through, Miss Matson clapped her hands and Freddie climbed down from the stage. I think you'll be fine as the green kangaroo, Freddie, Miss Matson said. It's a very important part. Freddie didn't tell anyone at home about the play until dinner time. 
And he said, guess what, everyone? Guess what I'm going to be? No one paid attention to what Freddy was saying. They were too busy eating. I'm going to be in a play. He said, Freddy said, I'm going to be the green kangaroo. Mike choked on his potato and knocked over a whole glass of milk. Ellen laughed because Mike spilt his milk. Dad jumped up. He patted Mike on the back to make him stop choking. Mom ran to get the sponge. She's cleaned up the spilt milk. Freddy just sat there and smiled. What did you say, Mike asked? I said, I'm going to be in the play, the school play. I said, I'm going to be the green kangaroo. It can't be true, Mike yelled. Why would they pick you? Because I can jump, Freddie said. I can jump too, Ellen said. Everybody can jump, Mike told them. Yes, but not like me. Freddie said, and besides, I can talk loud. I can talk loud, Ellen said. Listen to this. And she screamed. See how loud I can talk? That's enough, Ellen, Mom said. Dad said, Freddie, I think it's wonderful that you got the part in the play. Mom kissed him and said, we're all proud of you, Freddie. Ellen laughed. Green kangaroo, green kangaroo. She said over and over again. Mike just shook his head and said, I still can't believe it. He's going to be the green kangaroo. It's true, Freddie said. Just me, all by myself, the only green kangaroo in the play. Chapter 3. Oh, whoops, forgot to say chapter 2, but... The next two weeks were busy ones for Freddy. He had to practice being the green kangaroo a lot. He practiced at the school on the stage. He practiced at home, too. He made green... Kang- he made kangaroo faces in front of the mirror. He did ca- kangaroo jumps on his bed. He even dreamed about green kangaroos at night. Finally, the day of the play came. The whole family would be there. Some of their neighbors were coming, too. Mom hugged Freddy extra hard as he left for school. We'll be there watching you, green kangaroo, she said. After lunch, Miss Gumber called to Freddy, time to go now, time to get into your costume. Miss Gumber walked to the hall with Freddy. Then she whispered, we'll be in the second row. Break a leg. Break a leg, Freddy said. Miss Gumber left. That means good luck when you're in a play. Oh, Freddy said, I thought you meant I should fall off the stage and really break a leg. <laughs> that would hurt. <laughs> um, <laughs> Just jumping all around. Oof. Oof, snap. But uh, my friend's sister, when she falls down, she goes like, oof. (laughs) (laughs) The thing from a video game, like when you get shot in like a game or something, or walking around and you fall off the edge of the map, you just say, oof. You can fall off the edge of the map because the world is flat? Yeah. It's kind of like Minecraft, but round. Mm Mm-hmm. Miss Gumber laughed again. She ruffled Freddy's hair. Freddy went to the to Miss Matson's room. The girls in sixth grade had made him made his costume. I'm almost done, by the way. <laughs> they all giggled when Miss Matson helped Freddy get into it. His green kangaroo suit covered all of him. 
It even had green feet. Only his face stuck out. Miss Matson put green, put some green dots on it. We'll wash them off later, okay? Okay, Freddy mumbled. He jumped over to the mirror. He looked at himself. He really felt like a green kangaroo. Okay. It was time for the play to begin. Freddy waited backstage with the fifth and sixth graders who were in the play. And what grade is he in again? Uh, second. Well, and he's with fifth and sixth graders. Yeah. Wow, that's cool. Miss the teacher who was in charge of the play. Mm-hmm. Um, she needed someone to play in a special part, so he, since he wanted to be in the play, I'm just guessing he didn't know how to read numbers, so he thought it was for everyone. Oh, okay. He just went for it. Yeah, or maybe he does know how to read. Just, just wants to be in the play, maybe. Yeah. So he asked his teacher. She said, "Because she, she needed to give him to see if he really could be in the play." So yeah. The fifth and sixth graders who were in the play, they looked at him and smiled. He tried to smile back, but the smile wouldn't come. His start, his heart started to beat faster. His stomach bounced up and down. He felt funny. Then Miss Matson leaned close to him. She said, "They're waiting for you, Freddy. Go ahead." He jumped out onto the out. Wait, he jumped out onto the stage. He looked out into the audience. All those people who were down there, somewhere. He knew they were. It was very quiet. He could hear his heart. He thought he saw mom and dad. He thought he saw Ellen. He thought he saw Mike and Miss Gumber and the second grade class and all of his neighbors. And just a picture of everyone. Skip uh, that page. Mm-hmm. Uh, page won't let me turn. Okay. Two. They're all out there somewhere. They were all in the middle of the audience, but Freddy was in the middle. He was all by himself up on the stage. He had a job to do. He had to be the green kangaroo. Freddy smiled. His heart slowed down. His stomach stayed still. He felt better. He smiled a bigger, wider smile. He felt good. Hello, everyone. Freddy said, "I am the green kangaroo. Welcome." The play began. Freddy did his big and little jumps every few minutes. Big and little jumps every few minutes. One of one of the fifth or sixth graders in the play said to him, "And who are you?" Freddy jumped around and answered, "Me. I am the green kangaroo." It was easy. That was all he had to say. It was fun too. Every time the audience laughed. Every time he said it, the audience laughed. It was he liked it when they laughed. It was a funny play. When it was all over, everyone on the stage took a bow. Then Miss Matson came out and waited for audience to get quiet. She said a special thank you to our second grader, Freddie Diesel. He played the part of the Green Kangaroo. 
Freddy jumped over to the middle on the stage, took a big low bow all by himself. The audience clapped hard for a long time. Freddy didn't care much about wearing Mike's clothes. This is the last page. You're doing good. Four. I can't believe. Yeah, that's good. Uh, You're almost finishing Freddy this whole book. Didn't care much about wearing Mike's clothes anymore. He didn't care much about sharing Mike's room either. He didn't care much that Ellen was small and cute. He didn't care much about being the one in the middle. He just felt great being Freddy Diesel. And then on the other page, let's see. So there's uh, all these books. It's not just this one. They're by Judy Bloom, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of them is Bubbler. The other is Iggy's House. They're all Judy Bloom. Uh, these are all her books. Yeah. Um, Staring Sally J. Fredman as herself. Uh, it's not the end of the world. Are you there, God? It's me, Market. Dot dot dot. <laughs> uh, then again, maybe I won't. And. How are you reading those tiny letters? D E E N I E. What's that? Which one? D D E E N I E. Dini. Dini maybe. D E E D E E N I E. Dini, I guess. Yeah, but that's how I would say. Those are all those. Those are all books, a lot of her books. But yeah, I thought so. Yeah. The book is basically a lesson about being in the middle, mm-hmm. and being in the middle doesn't mean you won't be good at anything. Like, there's always something you can fit in. Um, so, yeah. So, I think that's a really good lesson. Mm-hmm. The whole book. Four chapters. You just read an entire book. Yeah, so it's one of those, like, kid books. It's not just for kids, but, like, it's... The type of those, how them, how the books are like really short. Mm-hmm. But so this one is a tiny bit longer, but yeah. But it's a good lesson, and you just finished a lot of home. You probably did what is that like twenty? Think no, thirty pages of no. homework on this book. How thick was that packet? I, I think it was. Like, I think it was almost thirty pages. And you did 30 pages of questions about the book that you just read. That's deep comprehension. That's awesome. That's exactly what we're doing here. You read something and not just read it, but then say, okay, what did I really learn? How can I relate this to my life? Those are the best things. That's why I love doing this. You are excused. And the reason I like the book that I was reading from is I love reading these stories where it just proves how much in history and right now that humans are capable of. Because right now I'm just trying to be in decent, pretty good shape so I can chase you and tackle you. It's pretty much my goal. <laughs> That's what I have to do. Because one day you're going to be big and strong and you're going to say, all right, Dad, I'm pretty sure I can body slam you. And I have to be ready for that day. And I can't wait. For 10 years to decide, oh, I got three months to get in shape. No, negative. It starts now. I can already body slam you. 
Oh, oh. oh. <laughs> off the couch. Okay, off the couch. Yeah, maybe. I can elbow drop you though. You can elbow drop me, but if I want to be in shape and ready, I it is not about oh let's let's tighten up for a month or two. No, you start now. If you're gonna be in shape or out of shape, you're gonna start working on it now. Yep. So let's see, you're eight. When you're eighteen and you're ready to body slam me, that means I've got to be in shape starting now. My body's got to be burning good fuel from now till then. No, sixteen, because eight plus eight is sixteen. Not oh, because that's when you can drive. That's when you think you'll be ready to body slam me. Sixteen. Think you'll be pretty strong. Yeah. Okay. You know, I worked. I worked on a shrimp boat thanks to Oma. She let me go with my uncle. And my aunt and work on a shrimp boat when I was 14 years old, 7th grade. Did you like it? It was awesome. But, you know what's funny? You know how little I am? I'm a little dude. But can you imagine me at 14? I was super tiny. Crazy tiny. And my uncle, he I hadn't even met him yet. He was a new uncle with my aunt. And she said, please, please bring my nephew. He's very sweet. And I was ready to work. I said, oh. I'm going to go make some money, work on a boat. That sounds awesome. So I went there and my uncle saw me and he saw how tiny I was. And I could, now that I'm older, I realized the face he made. But when I was little, I was, I didn't know what it meant. But he looked at me like, "Ugh, what am I going to do with this tiny weakling kid? (sighs) I got to turn him into a strong kid. But he never, ever said anything mean or negative, or bad to me. He always was positive. He always told me I was I could do it. He always gave me a lot of confidence, and he trusted me to do harder and harder things. So he just pushed me. He said, okay, you're going to be on this boat. We're going to wake up every four hours for 10 days and work hard. So every four hours, wake up. When? On the boat. When you go out to when I was six in the morning or every hour. So let's pretend. Let's pretend you woke up today. You got up at eight o'clock today, right? Uh, eight or nine. I can't remember. Let's just say you got up at eight. You're gonna work hard. You're gonna put on your boots. Start scooping the shrimp and the fish. You're gonna pick out all the fish that aren't shrimp. You're gonna scoop the shrimp in a basket. You're gonna hand the basket to the middle, the bottom of the middle of the boat, and to another guy who puts the shrimp with the ice in the ice hole. Close it back up, get out, wash the whole back of the boat, clean everything, put everything away. Now it's two hours before it's time to work again. So if you're quick, hurry up, go take a nap or rest because in another two hours, it's time to work for another hour or two. So I'd go hurry and take a nap. They wake me up. Guess what? Same thing. Pull the nets up all over again. Pour the fish in the shrimp. Put them in the... There's a big box in the back of a shrimp boat called a salt tank, right? So it's a big, giant square. I know those things they put, like, the shrimp in. It's like, you know how, like, soda cans, how, like, even water bottles, how they have those little container things? Mm -hmm. I think that's what they use for shrimp. Or at least fish? Or? Uh, so well, them, something I, like that. Is yeah, I think, I think it's called a CO2 cartridge. They use those for some. This is a different type where imagine a big bucket, 
twice as big as this table. And inside it, we put lots of bags of heavy salt, right? So you'd scoop a big shovel of the fish and shrimp, dump it in the big bucket of water. The shrimp- Take the shrimp out. The shrimp I mean, sink. take the yeah. other fish. Yeah, the shrimp sink to the bottom down there. And then a lot of the fish would float in the top. So then you scoop the fish off the top, throw them over <laughs> the back. That's kind of funny because you, like they float and like the shrimps. And they're like, yeah, I'm sinking. Then no. you, you scoop the fish okay. off the top, throw them over the back of the boat. Then you scoop. What if they land on the boat and you can't throw that far? Don't worry. We're going to clean the whole boat before you can take a nap and do it again. So then you scoop the that bottom. That actually kind of fun. It was pretty fun. So you scoop the bottom of the barrel where the shrimp are. You dump those on a big table and not all the shrimp floated. So there'd be shrimp and other little things that also sunk to the bottom of the bucket, right? But those so then, are like tiny animals. Though. Yeah. So imagine this whole table has the shrimp and the other fish we don't want, right? So then with your hands and gloves, because if you don't have your gloves on, you, you will yeah. get poked and stabbed with the sharp pokers on the bottom of shrimps and their face their head has a very sharp spine right right on the top of its head and if you're and also how the water temperature is you might be cold maybe yeah yeah it was hot this was in louisiana in the britain sound right and we would he lived in violet louisiana and it would take about four or five six hours to get out to the britain sound which is like imagine a giant part of the ocean but then there's a tiny bit of land that kind of curves around it. Not like a bay, but bigger. If it, So it's called a sound, right? So the waves wouldn't be the big, giant ocean waves. What does waves. movement mean in football? What does movement mean in football? Uh, I don't know. I mean, why did you say that when we were playing? Is that oh, what mean? Why did the other kid say that? Yeah. Uh, I think he meant false start. Oh. Oh, no, no. He meant, um, you know, sometimes receivers can run from one side to the other side oh, yeah. before you say hut. That's what he meant. Oh. But he just said movement, but he didn't say what he meant, but that's what he meant. Oh. Um, so the fish, right? So I put the shrimp. So then you pick out all the fish that are not shrimp and you just throw them behind you. Just throw them behind you. Grab that. Is that a shrimp? Nope. Just throw it over your shoulder. Dump it on but the floor. But if you accidentally throw a, throw a shrimp. A shrimp. Well, I hope you don't because we need that shrimp. And then once the table is all full of shrimp, then you scoop them all into a big bucket. That is heavy. Each bucket. What if there's sea snails? There, yeah. There's something. Uh, there was no snails usually. But there was these thin, skinny, skinny, skinny fish. That kind of look like eels, but flat, almost like like a thick piece of paper. And other people on the boats, they would eat those. They would they would hang them out like a little towel and let it dry and sprinkle salt on it. <coughs> Yummy! Wait, they don't even roast it. They don't even roast it. Some of the guys like to just eat those. It's gross. I never ate it. It looked and smelled nasty. Maybe it's awesome. Maybe I try it today and I'd be like, oh man. I could have been eating those weird skinny fish the whole time. Yeah. Sounds gross when you don't roast it. Yeah. Super gross. So now what I just said, so then now that we got all the shrimp, I take all the buckets full of shrimp, 
hand it down to a dude. They'd have to cut the eyes or bones out. So right now, you leave the head on the shrimp. You just the whole shrimp with its head, put it in that basket, right? Then in the middle of a shrimp boat, there's a big cover. You take the cover off, and then it goes down into the middle of the boat about ten feet, which is about as high as this ceiling, right? So you climb a ladder, do 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 do, and then you have a little hoist which would lower the shrimp basket to the guy in the bottom. Then he would it had big wooden planks. So you take the planks, which was the door, like a piece of wood, on top of another piece of wood, on top of another piece of wood. So you take them off, all of them, one by one by one. And then there's ice, right? Then there was another room full of ice, as bigger, twice as big as this room. Imagine this room plus another room full of ice, right? That'd be freezing me. It was cold to death. So you have to get your shovel, bam, bam, scoop the ice. Put it in the little room, right? So you put a layer of ice, dump the basket of shrimp, crack the ice, cover those shrimp with ice. All right, I'm ready for the next basket. Do 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 that over and over, right? Once all the shrimp are in the ice, put all the wood back piece by piece by piece to not let it melt. Cover the big ice room. Climb back up. Now it's time for cleanup. Gotta spray the whole boat, clean it up, clean this whole mess up, nice and clean. Everything's put away. Roll up the ropes, put the wires away, clean all the stuff off the floor, which is called the deck. I know. Get it all nice and clean. Now you can eat a snack or take a nap because guess what? What? In another two hours, we're gonna do it all again. Oh my gosh. So, I will. You can imagine. I never were. I'm working like a man. I'm a 14 year old kid, and I was working hard. Anything he asked me to do, I did it. Whatever he told me to do, I did it. And my arms, when I would go take a nap and lay in the little, and then there's a little tiny room with a little tiny air conditioner, and it felt so good because it was so hot in Louisiana in the summer. It was so burning hot when you're outside the whole time. So if you would sneak in the little room and take a nap, you'd feel like, oh, I never want to work again. You never want to work again. My arms were throbbing. You know, like when something, when you get hit really hard and it's just throbbing like, oh, boom, boom. That's how my whole arms and chest and back felt. Just boom, boom, boom. Just pain. It hurt. It was burning. Did you tell your uncle? No. But he knew. I didn't want to, I just wanted to do what he asked me because he was letting me be on his boat and it was awesome. I'm in the middle of this, I can't see land, I'm in the ocean, I'm on a boat, I'm working, like, it was an awesome experience. And I just, whatever we needed to do, I did it, right? But my arms, oh my gosh, they hurt so bad. They just kept, but what they were doing is I was working so hard, it was my muscles that were growing. They were adapting, right? So every time you push your body, your body will adapt. It will get stronger. It will do what it needs to do so that you can keep doing whatever you're doing. Right? For example, the guy I was telling you, his name's Ross Edgley, the guy who I'm this is like a month ago, I think, a month or two, when he swam around all of London. 
He swam for 10 or 12 hours a day in the ocean. 10 or 12 hours a day swimming. Every day for 152 days, I think. Something like that. I'd be tired. Yeah, he was pretty tired. But guess what? His tongue, because of all the salt and jellyfish, because he's just swimming and swimming. They what, were without stinging. any goggles? Or? He had goggles and a wetsuit because the water is super cold and freezing. But his tongue started breaking off in pieces. It just started falling apart from the salt and all the jellyfish stings. Wait, wait, he got stung? There's so many jellyfish out there. He would get stung all the time. Did it hurt him? It did hurt, and he said he just started ignoring it. There was only a few days when he just got stung so many times in his face that he had to quit. Just He's like, okay, I'll stop for today. Wait, in his face? Yeah, because he's swimming with his face, and and then... Sometimes it was just so many stings that he's just had to take a Wait, what do you stop mean? for the day. What do you mean his tongue was falling apart? Well, the salt starts eating, eating your. Uh, no, uh. don't worry. We'll we'll get the door in a little bit. We're almost done. A couple more minutes. But I don't wanna. You don't wanna what? I don't want him to feel bad <laughs> that we're ignoring him, even though we're here. Don't worry. We're gonna. Everybody's outside. We're gonna play soon. No. Yeah. So, oh, you know what was cool? Since I was a fourteen-year-old kid, I caught one time in the nets. We caught a blowfish. There's double people Do now. You, don't worry, it's the same person. Uh. Do you know what a blowfish is? It's that puffer fish that puffs up like a ball and has little spikes. And when there's no air, they're like flat. Yeah. Like kind of spongy. Yeah. I kept one in a cooler. Because I loved to pet him, and I would feed him little pieces of shrimp, Wait. and he would he would swim in my hand, and then I would. Wait, give, you had a fish tank? You had a fish? Well, not a tank, but I just put him in a cooler, you know, like the cooler we have in the garage. With yeah, I would, I would put fresh water all the time, and then I would put my hand in the water, and he would swim and just rest in my palm of my hand, Aww. and then I would and then I would feed him little pieces of shrimp. He was my little buddy. I liked him. Well, did you name him? No, but then when it was time to go back to land, you know, to get more gasoline and sell the shrimp, I let him go. But one time, the scariest time that I was just, I had to be brave is one time the nets, they got caught in the big motor, the big blades in Uh, the back underneath the boat. So the nets got twisted around the giant, um, the giant blades, the rudders. And uh, the blades, guy, spacing on the name, the big blades that pushes the water. So my uncle said, "Okay." So he had a he had a mask with the air tank, and he said, "And I've never been diving before. I'm only like I told you, I'm only 14." He says, "I need you to go under the boat with the air tank and the mask. You take this knife, and you." He goes, "It's okay if you mess. Just cut the net as much as you want. We'll fix it. We'll re-sew it when we get it on top. But I need you to go under the boat and cut it." And free it, and I'll pull the net up, and I'll pull you up, right? And the mask was not a... You know how when you wear uh, goggles, it's like a flat piece of glass? Yeah. Well, this one was curved like this. And when glass is curved like this, something small looks big because of how the glass is bending. So if if a little fish was this big, because of how my round goggles was... It would look three times as big. Were you you scared a lot? So every fish I looked at looked like it was three times as big. 
Did you ever see a shark? I'm gonna get that. Yes, but so this is what I did. I just I go, really want to know what type it is. I don't know. So I, I got, hope it's not a bull shark for I, you. I got in the water. I'm going. I need to go underneath the boat, not on the side. I need to go under the water and under the boat. So the I'm under the boat, right? And that's kind of scary because then you, how could you get up? And then like there's the giant, the giant wheel, the giant rudders, which is the three blades, right? There's two giant blades with three, three blades, and there's two of them because there's two engines on the boat. And I saw the net just twisted and twisted around it. So I'm holding onto the sharp, the blade, right? the big part of the boat, and I'm just cutting the net, cutting it, cutting it, cutting it, cutting it. And I'm trying not to look around at the fish because they're a little bit scary. They're just fish, but I'm still freaked out because every fish looks gigantic, right? <laughs> and so I just cut it, and finally it was free, and I'm cutting it, and I'm like, okay, breathing fast. Like, <gasps> Wait, that, you could run out right? of air, though. So the air tank was on the top of the boat, so I would never run out of air. Oh. But I was just nervous. So I was cutting, cutting, cutting. And then when it was finally free, I made sure it was all free. And I was, in my mind, I was also scared. What if the engine turns on and it spins the blade and chops me in half? That wasn't going to happen. But it's, I still felt nervous, right? Because it's this huge, the wheels are, let's see, I'm five feet tall. They were eight feet. So uh, imagine the blade as wide as the wall, right? There's two of those and I'm holding on to it. It would chop me up, right? But it was never going to turn on. So then I was done, right? I pull, I yank on the net so he knew to take the net up that I was done cutting. And then it was time to swim out from under the boat and get back on top of it. And when I swam down and around and I looked straight down because the water is pretty clear, way down below me, I could see dozens of sharks swimming way, 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 way down, just kind of, you know, doing, just going in little circles. They were very, very, very far away from me, but I got super scared. You would have thought I was Superman because I think I, I flew out of the water and onto the top of the was like, ah, there's sharks. <laughs> there's sharks. There's so many sharks. They're going to eat me. And my uncle Jules, he said, he just laughed. He's like, hey, those sharks are 60, 70 feet down. They're, they're probably asleep because they're I mean, just cruise. They have, they don't care about you. They're so far away. Even if they're right here, they don't want you. They eat the fish. But I got scared. And I was like, do I have to go down there again? I think I got all the net. And so I said, yeah, he goes, and you cut the net up pretty bad. We're going to spend a whole day re-sewing it and sewing it. Okay, so, all right, so we're at the very tail end of our <laughs> podcast for today. I feel bad. Everybody, be healthy, be strong. You already know what to do. Go do that. Any last words, Diego? Nope. Okay, great. Be healthy, y'all. <laughs>